Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff, and we're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're so glad to have you listening to this podcast, and we hope that you will support the work that we do on this program by giving us a call today. The number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org. This podcast may be an important part of your routine, um, so think about the times uh, whether you're on your commute or uh, on a run, all the times you listen to Where We Live and, and what that means to you. And if that's something you value, give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Dr. Miguel Cardona is the first Latino commissioner of the State Department of Education. The former elementary school teacher and principal was appointed to the state post by Governor Lamont in August. Coming up, we'll talk with Commissioner Cardona about his priorities, and we'll take your questions for him, too. I'll give you the number now, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. And you can also follow us and put in your comment or question on Facebook and Twitter. Just search where we live. But first, we wanted to find out how well uh, students in Connecticut public schools are doing. So joining us now for that perspective is Kathy Megan, who covers education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror. She's been a longtime education reporter. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Um, so would you like me to tell you about? Sure. I was, I I wanted to start off uh, before we talk to Dr. Cardona, um, when we think about how students are doing, so we're looking at standardized tests. Remind us what that test is and what are the results this year? All right. The standardized test, um, it's called the Smarter Balance Consortium Assessment Test. It's been around for the last five years. And, um, it's, it's a test by which the state attempts to measure how much progress kids are making year to year. And um, this year, it showed that there was um, some progress, not a whole lot, um, uh, a tiny bit of progress in English overall, up 0.4%, a little more than half of kids reaching grade level. And in math, um, a bit more, like 1.5%, or 1.3% actually, up. And um, uh, however, over the last five years, there's been uh, greater growth. Not so much, not in English. English has really stayed about flat. Um, in math, um, significantly more, um, up about 9% or so from 38.9% to 48, 48.1% of kids reaching grade level. Um, so when we look at uh, standardized tests, especially in Connecticut, we think often about the uh, achievement gap. And so when we break it down among children, uh, white children, uh, black children, and Hispanic children, um, when we think about the disparities, how do they look? Uh, well, well, there's the, the achievement gap in Connecticut continues to be huge. Um, minorities did improve. Black and Hispanic children did uh, have greater growth than the statewide averages this year. Um but still, there's a huge gap. Um, the um, basically uh, white children, I mean, black and Hispanic children, um, hit the benchmark at about half the rate um, that 
white children did, which is still a huge gap. However, you have to look at some of the improvements um, uh, for black and Hispanic children. There was a big improvement in math um, over the last five years and uh, a, a good improvement year to year as well. Um, for black students, let's see, five years ago, 13.9% scored at grade level, and um, this year, 23.3% did. So that was quite an improvement. So when uh, state officials and educators look at these results, you know, how do they view these incremental increases, Kathy? Well, they're optimistic about them, and, and they also look because um, in some of the younger grades where kids have had this new um, tougher curriculum that Connecticut has, tougher core standards, they're called, uh, since they arrived in school, the kids are sh- are showing some improvement and um, doing better than they had in recent years. So they're hoping it'll continue. But still, there's a, there's a feeling that it's not happening quickly enough and um, and that this gap still, this huge gap still remains. You know, in the state of Connecticut, uh, there's something called alliance districts. I don't know how far back that goes, if it's just a Malloy-era uh, designation. But describe what that is. And when we look at these particular districts, uh, are they seeing improvements? Yes. Well, th- there's there's 33 alliance districts. These are the districts that are struggling um, with having the lowest performing students, essentially. Uh, they get extra funding from the state to try to improve. And th- there was good news there in that they did show um, – more improvement, um, greater improvement than the statewide growth um, this year over last year. I bring up Alliance District because I believe uh, Meriden is one of them, and this is the uh, the former district of the now State Education Commissioner who we'll be talking with in a few moments. Uh, when you see growth in Alliance Districts, what is it? does that mean that the extra resources are making an impact? I mean, how does a school district uh, view this type of growth? Well, yes. I mean, the school districts, of course, are are thrilled. Um, Meriden showed significant growth. Vernon probably showed the most um, dramatic growth um, over the uh, over the last four or five years, um, and they attribute it to professional development, a more rigorous curriculum, efforts to engage with the family families, and all of those things can be enhanced by the extra money that they get through Alliance grant funding. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. In studio with me is Kathy Megan, who covers education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror. She's uh, updating us on how Connecticut public schools are doing uh, right before we speak to the new state education commissioner, Dr. Miguel Cardona. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. And if there's a question that you have coming up for the commissioner, that's the number that you can call uh, to reach us with that question. Uh, you actually profiled Dr. Cardona. Dona uh, recently for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, what's his take on uh, test results, specifically uh, these incremental increases in SBAC, and then overall, um, you know, how you can look at standardized tests uh, to really evaluate not only uh, student achievement but uh, the job that teachers are doing, Kathy? Well, he, I mean, I mean, he, he definitely. I mean, I think he's probably hopeful about some of the in- increases. But when I talked to him, of course, he said that closing the achievement gap is top on his list. Um, so he's very concerned about that. He does see this new test as better than the old Connecticut Mastery test. Um, the, the new test is based on more rigorous standards, um, co- the Common Core standards, and he sees that as um, a, a better test. But he does say that there's things about the test that are not as good as the Connecticut Mastery because the Connecticut Mastery would sort of pinpoint for teachers what things kids really need to work on, and the Smarter Balance doesn't do that as clearly. 
So I, I think he sees that as something he wants to focus on. Mm. Um, in one of your stories where you were talking about uh, results for standardized tests, you actually spoke with Executive Director of Educators for Excellence, Andrea Comer. Uh, what did she tell you about how to look again at these uh, increases in student uh, achievement on these tests? Yes, well, she was. she felt concerned that improvement is happening so slowly and was saying that if, you know, the state wants to improve its economy, et cetera, and have kids prepared to go into the workforce, they really need to step up um, improvement, uh, academic improvement. And and she talked about how she believes a more holistic approach is part of what is needed, um, that if kids are hungry or they don't have electricity or they're suffering from PTSD, um, they're not going to be able to learn as well. And so uh, any approach to improving, uh, to, to decreasing the achievement gap has to take those other factors into account. Mm. Before we head into break, uh, Kathy, something that's uh, gotten a lot of attention in recent months is uh, the Dalio Philanthropies um, pledging $100 million. Uh, this is a matching program if the state also puts in $100 million and also uh, private donors. So for a total of $300 million, uh, there have been some concerns about that partnership. It's a private-public partnership. Can you just remind us about um, you know, how that uh, partnership has been uh, uh, seen uh, at the state capitol? And then what are some of the concerns? Yes. Well, the big concern is that um, under state law, Sort of at the last minute in June, it became clear that um, that this new partnership was going to be exempt from open meeting laws, and um, people were very concerned about this because you're talking about a lot of state money um, going into public schools, and there's the feeling that uh, the public should know how that money is going to be spent, and uh, that that's something that there should be tr- definitely be transparency on, but uh, apparently. Um, Dalio Philanthropies had wanted this to not be open to the public. Now, this morning they're having their first meeting, actually, and they've made a big point of having it uh, open to – it is open to the public. And, um, of course, what we don't know is that they may call executive sessions um, for – we're not even really sure, it seems like, because with public meetings there's there's very strict rules about what you can have in an executive session. We don't know with with, with this public-private partnership – exactly what the ground rules are going to be on when you can have an executive session. So for today, it, it, it's, you know, it's open and uh, there's a lot of reporters there, I'm sure. So we'll find out it's an organizational meeting. So I'm sure we'll get some reports out of that. But how it will proceed, it's not really clear. Well, thank you for that update. Again, Kathy Megan, who covers education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks, Kathy, for coming in. You're welcome. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, the state's education commissioner joins us, Dr. Miguel Cardona. Now, do you have a student in a Connecticut public school? What questions do you have for him? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff. We're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Where We Live podcast. Uh, We're taking a moment also to ask you to support the work that we do on this program to ensure that it is here for weeks and months and years to come. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure. All you have to do is go to the phones 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org. I think one of the tricky things about a, a live radio show is uh, we're, we are only in one time block, and that might not be a time you're able to listen. So that's the, the great part of the podcast. You can take Where We Live with you wherever you're going at whatever time. So if that's something that's important to you, something you rely on to learn about what's happening in your community and in the world, the number to call 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Dr. Miguel Cardona grew up in Meriden, Connecticut, and began his education career as an elementary school teacher. Later, he would become a school principal and then an assistant superintendent. But this summer, his role as an educator expanded. He's now commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Education. Dr. Cardona joins us now from WMPR Studios at Gateway Community College in New Haven. Dr. Cardona, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I gave a a tiny uh, snapshot of your background, uh, Dr. Cardona. Tell us what motivated you to become an educator. Well, like many uh, teachers and leaders in the state, I had a positive influence uh, from some great teachers growing up, and that really made me interested in the profession. Uh, you said positive influences, but sometimes when we're go, uh, growing up and going through school, uh, the negative can also stick with us, especially if we've had a bad teacher. Is there anything through your upbringing in Meriden that struck out as you as somebody, if you wanted to be an educator, how you would change up how you approach students? Well, I think in general, uh, tremendous positive experiences I've had. But yeah, everyone has uh, experiences where you feel a certain way. And to me, I looked at that as motivation. I, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, in, in I think August interview, I don't know if it was with Kathy or someone else, but there were times where I felt that the expectations on me weren't as high as they could have been. Um, Why so, so? Excuse me? Why so? Well, just, you know, there's, there's a thing in, in, in Spanish called the I bendito effect. You know, the I bendito effect is when um, you know, a, a kid might be going into our schools with with m- more more uh, obstacles and more challenges. So I didn't grow up with, with a lot of material possessions. I, ha- I I was born rich. You know, I have a wonderful family, great support system, but you know, we didn't have a lot of means. And oftentimes, you know, when we see students that come into our schools that maybe don't have uh, as much or are dealing with things in their life through poverty. Um, Maybe even unintentionally, there are lowered expectations to say, I've been dito, poor thing. You know what? As long as they're behaving and trying their best, they're going to be fine. That's the worst thing we can do, that I've been dito effect. So, you know, I think as commissioner of education, one of the things that I, I really value and I, I want to put energy to is ensuring that all kids have high expectations, that especially the children that need to to grow more or they have to close the gaps, that our expectations are super high and that we support them throughout the process. Mm. Uh, I believe you came up through uh, the Meriden uh, Board of Ed. Were you assistant superintendent there? Yes, I was assistant superintendent there, but I started as a fourth grade teacher. Tremendous experience. Uh, I went on to uh, serve as principal of Hanover Elementary School, a place near and dear to my heart. 
Uh, and then after that, I, I went over to, to the uh, Central Office Administration, where I was able to work with uh, the 12 different schools in Meriden and, and, and all the students. So that approach that you had just talked about and how to reach out to children uh, despite their socioeconomic backgrounds to, ma- to believe that all children have the right to succeed. Um, so how did you do that in Meriden? So as a classroom teacher, you know, you have to look at your at your students as what, you have to look at what they bring to the table, right? Oftentimes there's a deficit mentality that if they don't they don't fit a mold of what a a student looks like that we're trying to fix kids. We don't need to fix kids. Kids bring tremendous talent with with them and they bring aspirations and and hopes and dreams to be successful. So what we have to do is tap into their scheme of how they look at things and how they value themselves. We have to not only provide rigorous programming in the classroom, but we have to ensure that we're creating an environment that's emotionally safe for these kids to to grow and and um, develop a sense of, of self-worth and, and purpose. So in the classroom, you do that. As a, as a building principal, as I said, Hanover Elementary School was a great place because it had students that were in our bilingual program. We had children with autism in a special program there. We had three and four-year-olds that we were helping them uh, navigate this this shift from from being home to being in a school. So it was a, a wonderful um, microcosm of society. And, and there, we created a culture where kids wanted to be there, where every child was valued. Every kid mattered. Uh, every kid brought something special. Um, and it, it cultivated a, a, a tremendous learning environment for that school. As assistant superintendent, one of the key things I focus on is ensuring that the, what we put in front of kids matters. The curriculum that we have is high quality so that all kids have an opportunity to succeed. Another area that fostered that sense of community and culture is the work that we did around restorative practices and, and student voice to ensure that all kids feel like they belong there and that the school serves them versus them having to come in and fit a mold of what school should be. You're hearing Dr. Miguel Cardona from our studios at Gateway Community College in New Haven. He is the uh, new state uh, commissioner of the Department of Education. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Andrea is calling in from Hartford. Go ahead. Yes, good morning, Commissioner. It's uh, great to hear you this morning. Um, my name is Andre Comer, um, and as you know, the last year the legislature passed a number of bills aimed at addressing educational inequity in the state, including the Minority Teacher Recruitment Bill. Since we know that all children benefit from educator diversity, I'd love to hear you talk about your vision for how the State Department of Education hopes to not only recruit, but also retain teachers of color in the state. Thank you for the question. So critically important that we diversify our workforce to reflect the population of students that we serve. Uh, we know students achieve when they see people that look like them too, or they think that they, they, they know they can be teachers. So it's critically important that it's done in various ways. One of the best ways to do that is to make sure that we're providing a good K-12 education for our black and brown students too. Unfortunately, as was mentioned in the previous segment, our, our students of color are not achieving at the same rates as uh, students that are not of color. We have to address that. We have to make sure that our students are graduating with the potential to go in and be teachers. We have to graduate students that leave our schools that say, I want to go back and be a teacher. Unfortunately, sometimes our students are disengaged and they just want to leave high school and not come back. So we have to make K-12 education something that engages them and hooks them. We need to think about growing your own. 
right? We have diverse students in front of us. Why are we not considering them our next teachers? So how are we doing that earlier? Middle school programs that get students to think about career and teaching, creating a, a career pathway in high school where courses that lead into child development or uh, child psychology so that these students could be then thought of as the future teachers, creating a pipeline program for them to visit colleges, schools of education, having the colleges connect with our high schools and say, we have space for you here, we want you to become a teacher. And then when they're studying in college, having those same districts that those students went to guarantee them a second round interview if they ever come back to teach in that district. So we need to create Grow Your Own programs. We need to look at how certification reciprocity either helps or hurts our uh, diversification of teachers. We need to provide, uh, we need to really boost the profession to, to what it is. Teaching is the best profession. And we need to be on offense uh, highlighting the, the great work that teachers do in Connecticut. You know, teachers shape lives. Teachers shape lives. So working with our colleges to create better pathways and a little seamless, more seamless pathway to, to uh, the teacher ed programs, working with our teacher ed programs to help our teachers be prepared for the students of today and the schools of today. That's important also. But also looking outside. You know, how are we recruiting folks into Connecticut to become teachers? How are we partnering to make an incentive to come to Connecticut? I had a meeting recently with the uh, Commissioner of Housing, Seila, uh, on creating a an incentive, a housing incentive for folks that want to teach in the urban centers. So if I'm a teacher that wants to get into teaching and I want to consider where I want to teach, maybe a housing incentive to live in the community where I teach would make me more likely to go teach mm. there. So, so that sounds uh, like a great idea, yeah. Dr. Cardona. But what about uh, for the teachers who are working in urban districts and the housing incentive um, I mean, helps them live in that uh, community? But what about the supports in place for teachers in those classrooms? What more needs to be done there? So, you know, as, as the needs of the students change, we need to make sure that we're providing professional learning opportunities for teachers and providing them with the tools that they need to be successful in the classroom. Um, the needs of students today are much greater than they were 20 years ago. And I don't think that we've done uh, enough to make sure that we're providing teachers with the support and the professional learning for, uh, to meet the demands of the students today. And unfortunately, many times when we're cutting back um, and we're cutting out reading supports or we're cutting out uh, social-emotional supports, that's what the kids need the most. Uh, we need to be looking at the staffing that we have and where we're putting our, our resources to provide supports for not only the students in the classroom, but for the teachers that have the difficult job of um, raising the bar despite having uh, needier students at times. You can join our conversation with Dr. Miguel Cardona, the new commissioner of the State Department of Education, the number 888-720-9677. Uh, Damien's calling from Farmington. Damien, you're on where we live. Thanks for hearing me, and thanks for being here, Commissioner. Uh, just wondered what your view on some of the recent statistics that have come out showing the dramatic increase in youth suicides, and if you see maybe any correlation between bullying in the schools and the prevalence of social media. So thank you for the question. Um, you know, that, that's an issue that, of course, as schools, we have to be aware and, and proactive in how we're going to address uh, this issue providing social-emotional supports and making sure that our schools are balanced to uh, increase rigor in academics, but also be attuned to the social-emotional needs of students. Um, in terms of social media use, uh, social media can definitely contribute to how a student feels about him or herself. And um, it's really important that as we're 
we have to be at the forefront of this shift to technology being the 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 you know communication um, tool for for students. We have to teach appropriate uh, citizenry, uh, digital citizenry, to make sure that we're teaching students those skills on um, how to treat others kindly and how not to make comments that are hurtful. So. Do I think that social media contributes to it? I think, unfortunately, sometimes when students um, don't have safeguards with social media or have free access to it, um, it could contribute to it. And our schools have to be attuned to that and make sure that we're we're taking a step to teach students um, how to be kind through social media as well. You can join our conversation, 8887209677 if you have a question for uh, the Commissioner of the Department of Education, Dr. Cardona. I wanted to follow up uh, about social-emotional learning, uh, rather. Uh, we're getting a tweet from a listener, Kathy, who wants to know what you can do, Commissioner, to ensure boards of ed comply with Connecticut laws uh, for this to be prescribed courses of study, which shall include mental and emotional health, including suicide prevention and substance abuse prevention. So thank you. Uh, so boards of education have a very important role in this process of making sure that the curriculum and the programming in the districts um, are, are appropriate for the needs in the district. So making sure that they're aware of what uh, is happening in their districts or the issues that are prevalent. I think that's critically important. Boards do have an important role in shaping the direction of the of uh, the curriculum and the programming. So it's critical that they're a part of that process. My role and what my vision is for how we uh, interact with boards is, is very clear. I think uh, uh, we haven't had a lot of uh, um, attention placed on the relationship between the State Department of Education and local boards, but we know local boards have such a great influence. So we want to uh, increase our level of support and partnership with local state uh, local boards to ensure that they have the tools that they need to guide the administration and districts around those things that are important. What I mean by that is giving access to them um, programs that do help with social emotional development, sharing with them the statistics on um, the the value of uh, making sure that there are good social emotional programming in the district or good supports for students that struggle in your uh, traditional K-12 setting. So there is a role there. What about the relationship between teachers and students, specifically when you talk about uh, safety concerns? Uh, Dr. Cardona, I'm sure you've seen the uh, preliminary report from Connecticut's child advocate, Sarah Egan, looking in at what has been happening in the New London public schools uh, system, a child sexual abuse investigation. You know, first respond to that news, and then as your role as commissioner, what needs to be done to make sure that this, this is not happening in other school districts? Because there are these intermittent reports around the state, around the country of inappropriate relationships or assaults uh, from teachers, paraprofessionals, and others on students? Sure. So, you know, before I get into that question, I want to kind of frame it uh, from the perspective of, of a father. Uh, before commissioner, I'm, I'm, I'm dad. I'm papi at home. And there's nothing more important to me than the safety of my children, uh, physical safety and emotional safety. So this is something that I think about daily. I want to make sure that our schools are safe places for kids and that the people that we put in front of them are people that uh, belong in front of them and uh, will create a safe uh, environment. Uh, so I'm very aware of, of the New London situation. Uh, I've had conversations with the superintendent recently, and we have folks from the State Department of Education communicating with her on a regular basis, coming up with strategies on how to um, improve the systems there to prevent this from ever happening again. 
in addition, uh, because it's not isolated to one community, um, the State Department of Education has already engaged in conversations about how to uh, create an outreach of conversation and bring in partners that work in all districts to have the conversation about how we're improving the communication and the safeguards to ensure that at the end of the day, we're providing a safe environment where uh, children are going in there to learn and not have to worry about being exposed to something that they shouldn't be exposed to or having an experience that um, can change their life forever. Uh, I mentioned that you uh, were assistant superintendent in the Meriden School District. So uh, talk to us from that uh, perspective. Um, again, the Department of Education having a role to play uh, in in seeing how schools uh, are having policies or maybe their policies need updated. But in specifically in Meriden, how did you address this to make sure children were safe? So we had um, s- several several things. So from, from a facility standpoint, we ensured that uh, – Everyone had a background check when they were volunteering, that they signed in, that they showed their badge before they walked into any of the buildings, that our staff was trained to make sure the practice was consistent um, so we knew who was coming in. For hiring purposes, we made sure we did background checks, and we were very thorough with those. Um, We, during the interview process, always asked about past history, but also looked into it uh, behind behind the scenes. but we also created an environment where students felt comfortable. They had a, they had a voice. You know, we had, uh, going back six, seven years, an email system where st- any student in the district could email um, that they felt unsafe or something was going to happen and they wanted to talk to someone about it. And those emails would, would, would be read and a response would happen. Oftentimes before the student went on the bus that day, they would be pulled out of class. We then shifted to a system that uh, uses a text. So any student in the Meriden Public Schools can text a number, and there's uh, an operator on the other line that will um, rate the degree of severity of urgency for that text. Um, And then there were times where I I would get a call on my personal cell phone saying, this student is claiming this, and I would act as uh, assistant superintendent to ensure that someone was talking to that child that day. So we, we need to create ways for students to communicate if they have concerns. And sometimes the concerns were not about home. There was one uh, recollection I have where it was a school vacation week, and I got a call from that that company that did that work. I got a call at my house, and I was able to um, access the parent of the child to get the help for that child. So it's, it's really important that we evolve in our schools to provide opportunities for students to speak. Not all students are going to be able to go down to the um, school counselor's office and wait to t- tell them they have an issue. Sometimes using technology can help us. Mm. Now, going back to your new role as the uh, commissioner of the State Department of Ed, uh, again, the importance of specific policies that are followed within school districts to make sure that children are safe. Uh, are paraprofessionals treated differently than teachers in terms of who is hired to assist in the classroom? So all, stu- all, all hires need to uh, go through a, a, an interview process and districts have um, screening processes and they do background checks to make sure that anyone who's working with children um, should be working with children or can be working with children. And then one more on, on this uh, subject, Dr. Cardona. Uh, we've seen this in, in other uh, cases of, of assault and harassment where adults who prey on uh, children and others, uh, they may uh, leave that job and then they get a job uh, in another school district or another organization that works with children. What can the State uh, Department of Education do in terms of making sure that that kind of uh, passing around of employees uh, who uh, may leave and that might not be 
divulge in a next uh, area that they might try to work. Right. So one of the things we're doing is now we're, we're revoking licenses when necessary. And that's something that we take very seriously. Uh, if someone has caused harm and the investigation shows that uh, the person should no longer, or we feel the person should no longer be in, in front of students, we revoke the license, which would prevent that person from getting um, a position anywhere else. You're hearing Dr. Miguel uh, Cardona. He is the new commissioner of the State Department of Education. If you've got a question for him, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. I wanted to just uh, jump into, um, you know, again, you're in this new role in terms of, uh, we've talked a little bit about how you, uh, the Department of Education, um, collaborate with uh, different school districts, but what is your leadership style, and, and how, how do you see uh, working with uh, so many districts in the state of Connecticut? So it, it, let me just start off by saying that I, I feel that if we do this right, this partnership, this 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 aggressive attack toward closing achievement disparities, um, our partnerships with the colleges and with the business folks and the different districts, different stakeholders, parents, students, we have the potential to make the education system the best economic economic driver in the state of Connecticut. So it, when it comes to, to the leadership style, you know, this, this mantra we have this year is learn together, grow together, right? So we're all in this together. So my leadership style is shown through that process where I know that in Connecticut, there's no shortage of good ideas in Connecticut. Unfortunately, we're, we're pretty siloed. There's good things happening in one part of the state that, you know, in Connecticut, it's not that big. But uh, across the state, uh, some people are grappling with the same problem but don't have a solution yet. We have to find a way to connect the dots and make sure that we're learning from one another, that we're one community where we learn from one another. So my style is very much inclusive of different perspectives, different groups. And when we develop plans to address major challenges in, in our state, it's important that I bring in stakeholders at the ground level to develop the plan, not co-sign a plan that I created, but give me different perspectives so that whatever we come up with is the best uh, product that we can move forward, best strategy to move forward for, for the students in Connecticut. Dr. Miguel Cardona is joining us today from WMPR Studios at Gateway Community College in New Haven, Connecticut. We're going to uh, continue that conversation after the break, and you can join us, too, if you have a question for him, 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before we continue our conversation, I want to remind you it's WMPR's fall fundraising campaign. It's the last day. Great news. But if you haven't had a chance to call in with your pledge of support for Where we live and all the great programming on Connecticut Public Radio. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Dr. Miguel Cardona, Commissioner of the Connecticut State Department of Education, joining us from Gateway Community College at WMPR Studios in New Haven. Uh, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Elise is calling from New London County. Elise, go ahead with your question. Well, congratulations, uh, Commissioner, and I'm so glad to have you. I really enjoyed listening to your um, excellent um, contribution to our state um, education and for our um, children's the students. Uh, question, I have a question. The um, uh, boxing, uh, classroom boxing in Montville High School, um, what are proposals um, are you doing to prevent that from happening in the future with the hierarchy, vetting them and training them and 
holding them accountable, both in criminal uh, DCF and also, um, you know, in the, what have you, in the education uh, system. And also one other question, what kind of safety providing for our school buses and maybe increasing the fine, I don't know, what is it, 500 to 1,000 or maybe 5,000 or something to safeguard um, people that are reaching the, um, the school bus um, stop uh, light. The, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Well, uh, I appreciate the, the positive comments. I, I really do. Um, so, you know, in terms of uh, the two issues that you brought up, the safety issues, right? So it's really important that the State Department of Education proactively says student safety is a priority. And while providing support to, I, I won't speak specifically any one district here because I don't have all the, uh, the facts. It might have happened before, but I, I'm aware of them. Um, we we need to make sure students feel safe in our in our classroom. We need to and, and on our buses at our bus stops. We need to make sure that we're being proactive about um, taking people out of the classroom if they think that it's okay to do things that uh, put kids in harm's way. And with the bus situation too, you know, one of the things that uh, kind of connects to a question that was asked earlier: What is my leadership style? Well, listen. Later today, I, I I'm on a panel with two other commissioners from DSS and DCF to say, how do we work together? How does my agency support your agency? And how does your agency support my agency? Because at the end of the day, they're our kids. We all serve the same population. They're our kids. So that, that partnership is going to ensure that we do the most we can, as the caller questioned, we do the most we can to make sure kids are safe on the bus, make sure kids are uh, safe in the classroom. So does that mean working with the transportation de uh, Department of Transportation a little bit more closely? I'm willing to do that. I want to do that because at the end of the day, I want to make sure those kids are safe. And when they're crossing those dangerous intersections, they need to know that they're going to get across without worrying that someone's not paying attention and is going to blow through that stop sign. Ooh, as a father, that, that concerns me. Uh, and speaking of father, just a quick shout out. I got a text from my father who's who's listening. I, I don't think he's going to be tweeting anything, um, but he's he's uh, texting me, telling me he's listening to the show. So quick shout out to him and also to my son who turns 15 today. Angelito, happy birthday. Happy birthday uh, to him. I wanted to just switch uh, gears because we don't have a lot of time, uh, Dr. Cardona, but uh, you are now a commissioner of a state with an aging population. There are some school districts in our state that struggle with student enrollment. Uh, we heard from the governor uh, last session about regionalization and there was an uproar because in Connecticut people like to keep things uh, as they have been uh, for many, many uh, generations. What's your take on regionalization and trying to do a better job of uh, delivering resources to districts so that all students can succeed? Sure. So uh, if you do what you've done, you're going to get what you've gotten. You know, those are, those are, that's an expression that I, I kind of live by. So if we're serious about improving outcomes for kids in Connecticut. We need to be innovative, we need to be creative, and we need to partner better. As I said earlier, Connecticut's a little bit siloed. So I had a question from a 15-year-old uh, young lady who, who asked me, she said, you know, Dr. Cardona, I really want to take a, an AP course, but it's not offered in my school. But it's offered next, you know, a quarter mile away at a school in a different district. I wonder if I can take that course. I want to be able to provide an option for that uh, student that says, yes, you can take that course. And we have great practices in Connecticut of districts working together or, um, you know, regional strategies that um, give kids more opportunities to succeed. I want to scale that up a little bit. I want to make sure that we know those best practices, but we, we need to create a culture in Connecticut that says they're all of our kids, right? And 
part of doing that, uh, Lucy, is, is really rewriting the narrative of what the State Department of Education does. We're in control of our own narrative to make sure that we're promoting those best practices. We have this uh, feature now, uh, Learn Together, Grow Together CT, on our website, where districts are learning from other districts. And one of the examples that we have on there is a district and district leaders who were very innovative and, and partnered with their colleagues to provide better opportunities for kids. So those are the type of practices that we want to see, and we want to see them at scale, um, and it's just better for kids. Well, what do you say to uh, the uh, cases where there are affluent districts who don't want to see uh, kids from the other town coming to their school? So, you know, that those the why behind that is something that I'd be very interested in seeing. And, and you know, if it's our if it's our shared purpose to create uh, citizens that are going to contribute in a, in a diverse world. Um, it's really important to make sure that all districts are providing opportunities for students to be viewed as a part of a greater community. You know, most students, when they go to college, they, they see the world or they see different parts of the state. Are we preparing students for that when we create a, uh, um, a tone where, uh, no, you know, we want to create, you know, uh, invisible barriers around our communities? We, th that's not good for kids, any kids, including the kids in that community. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, you know that the school funding formula uh, was in the courts for many years. It resulted in the state Supreme Court saying Connecticut's meeting its constitutional obligation, effectively punting it back to the General Assembly and how uh, schools are funded. As state commissioner, um, how would you address, uh, again, making sure that districts that have more needs are getting the resources? So we, we really need to advocate for what the needs of the students are. You know, when we're talking in general terms and at the 50,000-foot view, we're talking different. We really need to put stories of kids in front of folks that are making decisions, students who have opportunities when we invest uh, well, students who have uh, an opportunity to change the cycle of poverty or, or their trajectory of life changes as a result of a program, a summer program, an after-school program. Like, we need to be very uh, open and honest about what we're doing or what we're not doing and, and put it from the perspective of a child. Uh, everyone uh, wants to help children. So when we put those stories out there better, I think um, we have a better chance. But, but it's also being effective with the money that we do have. So how are we using our, our capital and are we putting it in the things that matter most um, to help kids be successful? That, that's also something that I've grown up with and, and every position I've had is, am I making the most of what I have? And if I am, then let's share the stories of how uh, resources can help kids uh, reach their dreams. Dr. Cardona, you said that everyone wants to help kids, including the uh, Dalio Philanthropies. Again, this uh, matching grant initiative, $300 million, sounds like a lot of money, but how do you make sure that if that goes forward, that, that those resources are spent wisely and the public knows about them? Sure. So I I'm excited about this partnership. And I think as a state, we need to be excited about this partnership. We have someone donating $100 million to help kids in high schools, kids that are disengaged, to re-engage them. My personal experience, I've, I've had experience um, with Rice CT, and, and I can tell you stories of students whose lives are better because of the support they received through that partnership. Now, one of the unique things about that partnership is it allows educators to make decisions because they respect the the the. the background of educators to make what the best decisions are for kids. So this partnership for CT, which, by the way, has um, the teacher of the year uh, sitting on it, uh, Sheena Graham, and uh, Jan Hockadell, who uh, represents teachers in the AFT, 
they're they're at the table making decisions about how this could be used. So I look forward to, you know, like that old um, saying, it takes a village. I look forward to partnering with them, to moving the work forward. We all have the same goals to help kids in Connecticut, and we have to be, we're more effective when we work together. I look forward to speaking with you further, uh, Dr. Cardona. You're welcome on the show anytime. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to Tucker Ives down in New Haven. Also, it's the last day of WMPR's fall fundraising campaign. If you appreciate the opportunity to ask policymakers questions and to hear this kind of conversation, please support us now.